This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Crack that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello, everyone. I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to a brand new episode of Hi Jinx with me, Jinx Monsoon. Today, my guest is Jeffrey Boyer Chapman, who you'll probably remember from uh, season three of RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars, when my best friend, Benda LaCreme, basically accosted him with a chewed up banana. <laughs> We don't talk about that today. We talk about his career as a model and an actor and what it was like for him growing up in his small Canadian town as one of the only, if not the only, queer person of color in his locale. Um, He's a sweetheart. He's a sensitive soul. And we have a wonderful conversation. So buckle up. Hunker down and get ready to sink your teeth into some brand new hijinks. Forever. everyone, I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to Hi Jinx, a podcast where I, an internationally tolerated drag superstar, get to interview compelling and fascinating people about how they became who they are and why they do what they do. Today, we are joined by actor and model Jeffrey Boyer Chapman. 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 <laughs> J. JBC. Hi, Jeffrey. Hi, Jinx. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, honey, I'm so good. It's so nice to see you. I have to say for our listeners, you're looking particularly butch today. You got your muscle tee on and your snapback. This is this is me in my daily drag. Believe I mean, I should I should point out that the the muscle tee has flowers on it. That's so. true. <laughs> <laughs> you're co- you're covering both ends of the spectrum. Uh, <laughs> um, so, are you in Canada right now? No, no, I'm in I'm at home in Los Angeles in good old oh, West you live Hollywood. In, you live in Los Angeles. Yeah, I've lived in LA for six years. I left Canada about twelve years ago. I was so when, I was raised there. When you there, judge okay. on Canada's drag race, you're yeah. you're an expat. That's true. <laughs> it's technically, yeah. I think we all were, weren't we? Myself, Brooklyn, and Stacy were all technically living out of the country. But you know, I, I feel like it's one of those things where Canada will take whoever they can. It's true. It's true. <laughs> well, you know, the unfortunate thing about Canada is that so often the talent um, has to 
cross the border and come down south to the United States in order to, you know, quote unquote, make it. And then only then are we recalled back home, the prodigal son <laughs> returning back home to, you know, show what we've show what we've got. It's similar to uh, to to growing up in Portland, you know. Yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> I believe it. Portland is uh, such a unique place, and there's a lot of drag talent here. Um, but you know, uh, I definitely noticed a shift when I when I left Portland. It was like everyone was like, "Wait, why'd you leave? We need you here." And I'm like, mm. I "Didn't feel that way when I was here." But also, <laughs> I was a fucking teenager. I say these things like as if. <laughs> As if I wasn't like, you know, 18 when I left Portland and um, just a, a little teenage drag queen working here. But um, do, do you feel was... do you do you feel understood in Portland? And oh, absolutely. Home? You do. I, See, mean... I never felt I never felt understood in Canada. I was always deeply because... misunderstood and people really didn't know what to do with me. Is it because you don't play hockey? I think it's because I don't play <laughs> hockey because I don't say a no, I think I mean, specifically working. I started modeling when I was like 16 years old, but then, you know, starting to work as an actor at 21, they're just, they didn't really know what to do with a black queer person. There really wasn't much material for us. And, you know, nor did they have much, many points of reference. So I was kind of a, a wild card for my yeah. adult life in Canada. Well, let's get into that, but let's start with talking about some of your acting credits Sure. Um, for reference points. Um, people will recognize you from Unreal, American Horror Story, the new iteration of Doogie Howser titled Doogie, help me with this. <laughs> <laughs> Doogie Kamealoha. Doogie Kamealoha, MD. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, as we mentioned, um, you are a uh, uh, you are currently, you were a judge on Canada's Drag Race. I'm I'm outing myself as not being uh, a Drag Race historian like some of That's my sisters. Amazing. You are still I, currently a, a, a judge on Canada's Drag Race, yes. I am currently a part of the Drag Race family and always will be, but no, I had to, uh, I, I, host, I hosted and judged season one of Canada's Drag Race and then mm -hmm. had to, had to peace out and, uh, Really, it came down to timing. I had to make a choice between either going back for season two or going and doing this Disney Plus show, um, Doogie Kame Aloha, and mm -hmm. and I chose I chose the latter. <laughs> well, um, so I, you know, I as a white queer person only, you know, witness things as an outsider of uh, the 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 loaded trials and tribulations of being a queer person of color in America. Mm. Um, mm. But I am completely foreign to um, what that entails as a queer person of color in Canada. Mm. And um, I'd love to hear what your experience has been and how you might be able to compare and contrast it to, you know, now living and working in America. Oh, jinxy. That is a loaded question, honey. <laughs> it is. I mean, I think, you know, obviously, um, it's not a monolith and I can't mm -hmm. speak for everyone, but in my experience, I think it's going to be far, far different than a lot of people's experiences because um, just, just because of circumstances. I mean, I was adopted as an infant. Uh, I was raised by a white family in an all white town. I was the only black person or person of color in my school, uh, in my town. Really, I, I didn't really have, I, I didn't know any other people of color um, growing up. So, uh, you know, people's Pers uh, people's view of me was kind of formed by me being their only point of reference for a black person or an identifiably queer person. Um, I think that the difference between 
America and Canada, the vast difference that I really recognize is um, in our history. We didn't, we didn't in Canada, we didn't have the same history of um, slavery and oppression uh, and ownership over black bodies. So um, racism aimed towards black people or black bodies specifically in Canada is, doesn't come from the same um, deep seated place of, uh, of ownership and power over um, it's, there's, there's, a, there's a level of ignorance and naivete and lack of exposure um, that goes along with the racism that's geared towards people of color um, in Canada, specifically where I was raised. I feel like, um, you know, people's uh, ideas of me as a black person were really only formed from what they saw in, you know, in television and film and in literature. It wasn't really based on any of their own personally lived experiences. So I think that it's going to be much different for people who were raised in major cities like Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal. But that was my experience growing up as a, as a young queer kid in a, in a podunk town. It was just that I was the only one. So people didn't really know what to, what to make of me. Um, what was that an isolating experience? Did you feel a part of the communities you were raised in? Um, uh, did you did you feel othered throughout your life being, uh, you know, the only person like you in this small podunk town? <laughs> I mean, yes and no. I think that you know, any uh, marginalized individual is going to f go through periods of their life where they feel isolated or othered but you know I, I had a really wonderful childhood for the most part I until you get to that age where kids start to be really cruel and pointing out your differences and people you know like in no uncertain terms let it be known that I was different because of the color of my skin and because of um, my sexuality um, but up until that point no I very much felt um, embraced and loved um, and then it just depended on where I found myself in Canada, where you know I moved around a lot as a kid. Um, so when I lived in smaller towns, um, I experienced one thing. But when I was living in larger cities, um, no, I, I felt. Uh, although I was always kind of the odd one out and different than other people, I, I didn't necessarily make me. Um, I didn't necessarily have a target on my back because of it. But that said, it wasn't until I moved to America. It wasn't until I moved to New York City when I was 25 years old that for the first time in my life, I recognized what it was like to um, be completely anonymous. I could blend in, I could walk down the mm -hmm. street and I didn't stand out. And there, there was something really freeing um, uh, about that experience. And yeah, I'd never, I'd never experienced anything quite like it living in Canada. Yeah, I think a, a lot of, um... A lot of queer people appreciate anonymity in different mm. <laughs> circumstances. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, there's a whole sexual context there. Um, but, uh, you know, <laughs> growing up in Portland, I always felt like, uh, you know, I came out at a very young age, relatively. Um, How old were to, you? Um, I was about, I think I was 13 when I started. Wow self-identifying and it kind of became known amongst my friends and by the age of 14 you know um i was just out and loud and proud mm. <laughs> but i was also very fortunate in portland oregon um i i i benefited from a lot of extra safety and security that um you know uh, 20 years ago wasn't abundant in lots of places and um, I came out at 14 and had a queer youth um, 
recreational and resource center to spend my time. So I met other people my age who were queer and trans the moment I came out. Mm. And I think that's the biggest thing that was one of my hugest benefits and privileges is getting to meet other people my age Mm -hmm. who shared these experiences. Because in middle school and high school, at the time that I was like developing my queer self, um, you know, I was one of um, two people in my middle school who came out in in our middle school years. And Mm -hmm. we dated because, you know, (laughs) proximity. (laughs) But um, (laughs) in high school, we had a gay-straight alliance and... I was one of a handful of people who self-identified as queer in high school. Um, but uh, I had this other place to go where I had all my peers. And I always say it's kind of like, you know, a lot of queer people go through their puberty, their biological puberty, um, having to kind of fit in and mm-hmm. pass a straight um mm-hmm based on their circumstances or their location. And then when they get to come out later in life, it's almost like going through a second puberty. It's almost mm. like re-exploring yourself, your body, your your identity, your hormones mm-hmm. as, a, as a now queer person. And I was very lucky because I got to do it both at once. I got Absolutely. to go through my queer puberty, puberty at the same time that my body was going through puberty. Yeah, so. that's a rarity and a blessing. And if I remember correctly, yeah. you also had the the support of your family, your grandmother, yes, who was very yes. supportive of you of you coming out. My whole family, um, again, I'll say relatively because you know it's it's very specific to my experience, but my whole family was good about it. You know, there there were bumps in the road. But um, I had a very blessed experience compared to a lot of people's experiences coming out to my family Mm -hmm. and the support of my grandmother and also my aunt, who was always, you know, my grandma got more airtime when I was on Drag Race, but my aunt was also, (laughs) I always say I had three mothers growing up because I had my mother um, who gave birth to me, my aunt who kind of raised me um, spiritually and emotionally, and then my grandmother who was kind of like my protector and my guardian. So I was raised by a small coven and, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, you know, uh, it taught me a lot about uh, the female experience and a lot about the single mother experience Mm -hmm. um, uh, growing up, which is, why um, so much of my work as a drag performer is influenced by the experience of strong, independent women and why my drag character herself is a single mother. Because (laughs) that was, um, you know, that was how I saw femininity growing up. Um, So Yeah, you you and I were so blessed in that respect. I was raised by a coven of women as well. I was raised by a single (laughs) mother. I have three sisters, three sisters that I was raised with, and then a handful Mm -hmm. of sisters on my biological side. All of my closest friends have always been female. My my team, my managers, my agents have always been female. The people, my mentors, the people I've looked up to and gone to for advice or in times of need have always been female. There's um Mm -hmm. There's just something so powerful about the um, feminine energy that I have just the utmost respect and and admiration for. Always have, always will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, sisters on your biological side. Does yeah. that that it would imply that um, you have a connection to your bio- biological family, having been yeah. adopted? 
I do. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a massive family tree, so I can't really mm-hmm. even begin to break it down for you because it's hard <laughs> for me to make sense of it myself, but, but yeah, um, when I was 25, when I first moved to New York, I uh, was in touch, uh, got in touch with my youngest biological brother, who's five years younger than me. Uh, I found him through a private investigator. Um, through him, I found my biological father, who then connected me to several other siblings. Um, there's about 13 of us on my biological side, as far as I know. And then it was about four years ago that I met my biological mother for the first time as well. So it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a long lineage. Yeah. Um, I'm the oldest of five siblings. I have one mm. full sibling. Um, uh, we have we have a melange of parentage. <laughs> uh, I my youngest sibling is probably I think about three years old now because um, as I keep joking, my dad just won't stop uh, <gasps> having kids. Wow. Um, uh, and it's really been, you know, my my sister. Um, I have two sisters. The the young one I just said, and um, my sister uh, Jessica, who's in her mid twenties now. And um, we, you know, we knew each other growing up as kids, um, but didn't spend a lot of time together. So. Mm-hmm the relationship that we're building now as adults is very much, you know, now that we're not relying on parents Mm -hmm. to facilitate us seeing each other, you know, Mm -hmm. it's in Mm -hmm. our hands to build our relationship now as adults. And it's very, you know, it's cathartic, even though we had very different experiences growing up, it's cathartic to be, you know, to have another person in the world who knows what it's like having our father or having, you know, the kind of experiences we had as um, Mm -hmm. being raised by single mothers. And Mm -hmm. I think um, those relationships with siblings can be very, very important. Oh, absolutely. I mean, do do you, do you find the nature versus nurture um, component in your relationship with your sister? Do you find a lot of similarities that you are now discovering as adults? We have so many similarities. Um, Uh, I think a lot of it is the Portland influence. You kind of can't be raised in Portland without coming out some kind of weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, my, my sister's a really awesome person. My, my brothers are really awesome people. We're all very distinctly different. Mm -hmm. Um, Are you the only queer um, person in your family? I am not. My youngest brother is also queer. Um, My sister, I would say, is queer adjacent. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm giving her that title. Um, she, uh, uh, her partner is not, you know, uh, a, a tradition does not traditionally fit into gender roles or anything. Um, so, and, and like I said, that uh, that's a lot of um, Portland influence. You know, mm-hmm. um, I feel like. Among the privileges of being in Portland is there's, like I said, a lot of safety and security and yeah. being someone who doesn't fit into mainstream molds of gender presentation or, um, um, you know, the one thing Portland is lacking, and this is true of the Pacific Northwest, like the the um, liberal cities in the Pacific Northwest, I'm mainly talking about Portland and Seattle here, but um it is a very liberal, progressive area where, you know, a, a lot of mindfulness and a lot of conscious effort towards being safe for all types of people. Mm-hmm. And in that, it's also not very diverse. So it's one mm-hmm. of those things where it's kind mm-hmm. of 
I always say it's kind of easy to claim those things when there's not a lot challenging it, you mm-hmm. know? <laughs> yeah, it's oh, definitely. easy to say you're liberal and progressive when the population is so similar in yeah. so many regards and demographics that you don't, you know, you can say it, but you don't get challenged on it a lot because there's not a lot of diverse representation. Absolutely. I mean, I lived in Vancouver, um, Canada for years. And, uh, you know, I, as I mentioned before, I felt very, very much misunderstood living in Canada for first, you know, so much of my life. And it's, uh, I, I can identify so, so clearly with what you're saying right now. And so much of it had to do with the fact that I was one of very few queer black folk, mm-hmm. um, in, in my community at that time. So there, you know, if it's, of course, it's easy to claim, um, you know, a, a wide net of acceptance when there's <laughs> not really much else to, to challenge it, like you're saying. Yeah. In Portland, I, I can say, and I, you know, I always mention this about, you know, being in this liberal progressive bubble um, with not a huge array of diversity, but uh, a lot of migration to Portland has happened in the last like 10 years. You know, mm-hmm. um, Portland has become a city where a lot of people want to be. So there is growing diversity and the queer community has really led the charge, um, at least in my experience, in making sure that that diversity is represented and honored. And I see a lot of work being done in the queer community, the LGBTQ plus community in Portland to make that space Mm -hmm. so that there is that representation when we've so long not been a very diverse location. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. kept you in Portland as opposed to coming to LA? Like so well, many of us have. I'm candidly, I, I guess it doesn't have to be candidly, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's just you and me talking. So inherently it's candid. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but um, right before the pandemic, um, I had been living in San Francisco and then um, basically me and my business partner, uh, Kenneth, who's also my best friend and has been working with me since Drag Race happened and and before that, you know, was one of my biggest supporters um, leading up to Drag Race. Um, we had made the plan to move to L.A. and mm. we decided we were going to start all over in L.A. So we moved all of the stuff we wanted to keep into my house in Portland, um, which I had bought about four years back and was running as an Airbnb. Um, and that gave me a room to stay in, you know, a place to stay in mm. when I came to visit my family who all still lives here. 
And we had moved back with the intention of being here about three months and then moving and starting anew in L.A. Then the pandemic happened. And now I'm so settled in. You're going to have to like drag me kicking and screaming anywhere else. But yeah, Portland, I just I I always say Portlanders who leave Portland are like the Amish on Rumspringa. Ninety percent <laughs> of us move back here <laughs> at some point. And I've been talking to a lot of Portlanders recently about this. And I th- uh, the the common thread seems to be that you can travel all through America and different countries, and you're just never going to find a, a place quite like Portland. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's such a, we have so much to offer here, but we're still a fairly small city. Mm-hmm. So you're, you have a lot you can do. You have a lot of routes you can take as an artist, as a queer person, as any kind of person in Portland without being overwhelmed by, you know, uh, obscene overpopulation. <laughs> Child, I get that. So were, yeah. would you, would you consider coming to LA ever? Yeah, I, it's still yeah. in the plans to yeah. keep a place in L.A. I, you know, I want my future to be in TV and movie work without ever fully giving up. I'm never going to give up live entertainment because that's yeah. where I feel my most powerful, I guess, is on stage mm-hmm. in front of a live audience. But um, I love working in TV and film and voiceover work. And you can't deny that when you live in L.A., those mm-hmm. those things come a little bit more abundantly and a little easier. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, but that said, uh, you know, Hollywood is just very much a concept. And I think that the mm-hmm. pandemic has, has proven that to us, you know, more so than any other time in, in our lifetimes, that the industry can really be wherever you find yourself with the nature of self-tapes and audio recording yeah. booths to do podcasts all over the country and, you know, send in voiceovers for animated features and things like that. It's kind of, it's it's wherever you want it to be at this point. So I think it's great that you can be where your heart wants to be and then also still thrive in a professional manner in Portland. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think, you know, uh, <laughs> that would be one of the silver linings of the pandemic is I think we we realized how much can still be done remotely. Mm-hmm. And um and then also, I think uh, the pandemic, the entertainment industry, I think, is inherently exploitative. I'm not going to point any fingers at any one <laughs> group of people, but it's inherently exploitative. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we see it more drastically in the adult entertainment industry, um, mm-hmm. more clearly, at least. Um, but the pandemic, I think, in many ways... Uh, showed how much power performers actually have in yeah. in in this in this industry, and mm-hmm. that without the performers, you know, what could you possibly do? Right. <laughs> so, yeah. I think a lot of performers have uh, taken stock of their worth and taken stock of being able to advocate for themselves and mm-hmm. for their fair treatment in this industry. Because without the ability to, you know, have performers perform, the industry kind of shuts down. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so you talked about starting modeling at 15 years old. You said 15 I, or 16. I, yeah, yeah, I was 15. <laughs> I guess when I did my first test shoot, when I first uh, met with my first agency, and then I was 16 when I first got signed to an agency. How? <clears throat> Oh my god! Do you ever just <laughs> inhale and choke on your own spit? It's the most all embarrassing the time. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
what what's that like you know being a teenager that's kind of when you're coming into your sense of self that's kind of mm-hmm. when you're exploring your image and how you're going to present yourself to the world and then mm-hmm. to and then to put yourself in the realm of modeling which i i'm sure inherently comes with a lot of critique and criticism a lot mm-hmm. of like assessing you at, based on your image. Uh-huh. Uh, what was that like navigating, finding yourself at the same time that you're putting yourself on display? That's such a great question. I mean, in, in regards to the amount of critique um, that I was receiving from outside sources, um, it, I, it definitely, it, it, I grew the thickest of thick skins, um, you know, ex- experiencing having, you know, grown adults tell you all about yourself from, from head to toe from the time you're 15 years old, you, you kind of have to have, um, I, I gained the ability to step outside of myself and learn to not take things personally. So I think that was a tremendous blessing and unexpected, unexpected blessing that came from that, that uh, me starting in the industry at such a young age. But, you know, it was something that I never, I never anticipated doing. I never saw myself as a model. I never even thought it was the possibility. It was a friend of mine um, who I went to school with in this tiny little farm town that I lived in who entered a beauty contest through this uh, cosmetics company called Merle Norman. (laughs) <laughs> where she would, went in and got a, a makeover and then they took a picture of her and they uh, sent it into a modeling agency. And if you won the contest, you want a contract with the agency. And she did uh, and went to Milan for the summer. And when she came back, I went in with her to her agency one day to pick up a, a, one of her a paycheck um, and her booker asked me if I would be interested in doing a test shoot. So I did. And, um, you know, from that point forward, I think I just saw it, although I had never considered it before, um, I, I began to see the possibilities and the doors that could be opened for me. Um, and it, it just, it immediately presented itself as a, as a way out of this little town that I found myself mm-hmm. in. Um, so, you know, it was, it was something that didn't come naturally and it took a, a, a many, many years of um, trying to figure it out. The only real points of reference that I had at that age were female fashion models. So I didn't really know what it meant to be like a 16 year old, six foot black male model. Like I, I just didn't, I, I, I didn't, I didn't know. Six what... foot you say. Yeah. <laughs> I'm six, and I'm six foot four now. So I just kept growing and growing and was taller yeah. than many male models that I found myself up against. Um, but uh yeah, I mean, it was uh, th- those being in the industry at such a young age during my formative years. I think that I grew up very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, you know, I, I was exposed to an, a very adult world at a very young age. And I just learned how to um, stand up for myself, speak up for myself. Like I said, not take things personally, um, really take critique and um, uh, uh, flip it into uh, something that uh, that uh, that I could grow from and learn from and essentially be like a more rounded individual, not just a model or an artist, but um, how can I take this and use it for a purpose greater than myself? Um, you know, I, it, there was many uh, 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 hardships that came along with it. I developed a pretty serious and d- isolating and sad eating disorder at about 16 years old. Um, and, uh, you know, that was that just definitely uh, uh, presented its challenges throughout the course of, of my teens and 20s. But I learned a lot from that as well. I think that, you know, uh, from the world that I was in, this tiny little town where everything was the same every day was groundhog day um to <laughs> going going into a world where nothing was ever the same things were constantly shifting and evolving 
Um, it just gave me an opportunity to explore and discover all sides of myself and be exposed to so many different people from so many different walks of life. Um, and I felt like in a way I got to choose and curate the person that I wanted to grow into, as opposed to um, so many of the people that I grew up with um, or not that there's anything wrong with it necessarily, but they're, they're still the same people that they have, that they um, were kind of in a state of arrested development from, you know, 13 years onwards. Uh, do you know what I'm saying? Can you relate to that? Yeah, well, I think that's kind of the double-edged sword of the world being set up for, you know, um, what is considered the standard, what is considered normal. You know, mm -hmm. if mm -hmm. you are a straight, cis, and white person, mm -hmm. the world is set up to tell you, basically, here's what you do in life. You know, mm -hmm. like you go to <laughs> you have school. Hand, you have a handbook. <laughs> you go to school. You go to high school. Maybe you go to college. Mm -hmm. You get married around this age. You start having kids around this age. You should have everything figured out around this age. Mm -hmm. And and then that's your life. And that's right. kind of like the American model that we've been fed through TV, media, by our government. And um um, it sounds like it was similar your experience in Vancouver when you are a queer person or when you are a marginalized person and and the whole world isn't set up to just like hand you a life plan mm -hmm. um, you discover it for yourself and you find yourself you know going against that model that we've been fed mm -hmm. um, so there's double-edged swords to both like as a queer person, it's not set up for you, but you kind of have a lot more agency or yeah. you you at least like see your own agency easier when you're having to carve your own path. When mm -hmm. the path is laid out for you, you might not discover till later, maybe this path wasn't the path I actually wanted to take. It was just the right. path that was laid out in front of me, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm still trying to figure it out, Jinx. Any, <laughs> any day now, I'll get that. <laughs> Well, everything in life is fluid. Um, I think the biggest thing that I've learned in my adult life is not to um, think that things can be true for you right now. And then in 10 years, things could be completely different, but just yeah. as true. Yeah. And it's about, you know, giving yourself permission to experience many different truths and, and to adapt your truth and evolve your truth as you grow mm -hmm. up so that you're living truly to yourself, but not keeping yourself confined to something that was true for you five years ago has mm -hmm. to be true for you today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, no, I couldn't agree more. And I think that one of the greatest blessings that has come from exactly what you're saying is not only discovering that to be true for myself, but being able to present different, uh, different uh, that that same manner of thinking to the people who were closest to me, who I grew up with, my, my siblings and my mother and my, my best friends that I grew up with, and just showing them that they do have um, the, the choice to challenge societal norms and go outside, you know, break the rules that have always been presented to them as being black and white, the absolute truth and um, uh, expand their consciousness in ways they've never even dreamed possible. I think it's such a gift to give. And I, I know that I've only, you know, can say that because I experienced it from people who came before me, who once again, presented um, different paths of what was possible to me at such a young age. And that's what I think is, um, you know, that's a big part of why representation and inclusivity matters is that, 
you know, um, it's easier to see different paths for your for your own life yeah. when you're able to see those paths displayed and you know <laughs> represented in in media and in culture. And um, who was that person you know, for you? Did Did you have a certain someone that that was that person for you? I think really early on, um, one one of the times for me when I was like, oh, there's a lot I can do with the life I've already had um, mm. was seeing the movie Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Oh and, my gosh, yes. And, and knowing that John Cameron Mitchell wrote that first as a, as a stage show and then it mm-hmm. turned into a movie and John Cameron Mitchell and Stephen Trask, uh, you know, Stephen Trask writing the music for John Cameron Mitchell to perform. It's like the, they had so much involvement in every stop, step of that process. Mm-hmm. I was like, I felt seen by just the film itself, you know, mm-hmm. um, so much conversation around gender identity was opened up for me. And it's not the story of a, I, I had John on this podcast and we talked about how Hedwig's not the story of a trans woman. It's a very specific story of this one person. Mm-hmm. But I also, you know, knew a lot of trans people my age and saw, you know, um, I, I saw at an early age that just because you were born with a certain body does not mean that that has that your life is dictated by that. Mm-hmm. And Hedwig's story is very circumstantial, but the whole I think the whole thesis of the show and the story of Hedwig and the Angry Inch is finding your own sense of completeness within yourself as who you are and um, getting away from the idea that we have to fit into someone else's expectation of who we should be to be able to be feel complete you know it's the it's the wizard of oz honey it's the wizard of oz it's the hero's journey it's starting out in black and white kansas and going all around the world trying to discover you know bits and pieces of who you are and only to return back home to discover that was inside you all along yeah. You know, have, have you ever played? <laughs> have you ever played Hedvig? Yeah, I you um have? I played Hedvig um locally. <laughs> did you hear me just switch cuz I was saying Hedvig earlier? Hedvig, I said, did. Yeah. And then you said Hedvig, <laughs> so now I'm saying Hedvig. Um oh, I just had a conversation with someone about this because uh, does, uh, they work does, with <laughs> How does John, work, Yeah, how does John pronounce it? I can't even uh, I don't know. I feel like maybe he switches back and forth sometimes too. But I was just having this conversation about like uh, someone works with someone named David or David, and everyone, <laughs> everyone at this job says something different, and yeah. and then someone will hear someone say David and then s- switch on a dime, like saying yeah. <laughs> so. That's why I um, often want people to pronounce things for me first so that yeah. then I can just, you know, pronounce yeah. it the way I heard it pronounced. And so thank you so much with uh, for oh, helping so, me out. You're so Doobie, funny. Comma, Kamealoha. Kamealoha. There you go, girl. You you know, I was like, I was, I think I was 20 or 21 years old and I was living in Vancouver and I was working at, 
I had kind of taken a step away from modeling for a little bit and I was working at my modeling agency as my booker's assistant. And it happened to be right next door to the office of um, uh, Vancouver's Queer Film Festival. And they had, uh, somebody came over from the office and asked me if I would be, you know, like the chaperone, the date uh, for one of the directors who was coming in to screen a documentary. And I said, sure. And they said his name was John. And I was like, sure. Um, so I, I joined this lovely director, John, to his uh, supplementary documentary called Follow My Voice. It was a supplementary film to Hedvig and the Angry Inch and spent the whole night with him. And we went to dancing at a club and went for dinner beforehand. And it was John Cameron Mitchell. And I had not <laughs> seen Hedvig and the Angry Inch yet. I went home and watched it the next day and then like lost my absolute mind that I'd spent, <laughs> you know, a day and night with this absolute iconic queer legend. He's just yeah. so brilliant and such a kind individual. Absolutely. And he's been yeah. he's been so kind to me throughout the years. Um, but this is not an episode about John Cameron Mitchell. This is an episode well, it can about be. Jeffrey Boyer <laughs> Chapman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Let's talk about your transition from modeling to acting. Um, sure. How did, how did that happen? Was it natural? Did you have to um, fight and claw and bite your way to it? Or did it uh, did something come along and it was just the perfect fit? So it's one of those like annoying stories where, you know, where, where, you, where you hear people say like, nobody ever gets discovered anymore. Like Lana Turner in a, you know, drugstore sipping on a Pepsi. Um, I, I was still, I was living in Vancouver. I was still modeling. Um, this was right around the time, like I said, where I kind of took a step away from modeling and was working at my, my agency. Um, I uh, was doing castings for fashion week and decided to skip my last casting and go for lunch with a friend of mine at this new restaurant in Vancouver. So while we were sitting, having lunch, um, this gentleman across the way kept, kept uh, eyeing me up and his lunch companion came over to me and it was an acquaintance of mine who said, uh, I know you model, but do you act? And I said, no, I never have, but I, you know, I would love to. Um, and he said, well, come meet my friend. So I walked over and it was this lovely gentleman named Ron Oliver, who's a film director. And he said, um, I'm, I'm, I'm casting my latest film and I would love for you to come in and read. And I said, okay, well, here's, here's my modeling agency's information. He took it. Uh, I went to a concert that night and went to go see Stereo Lab uh, and got <laughs> home at like two o'clock in the morning and checked my Blackberry. And on my, e on my, in my email, I had sides <laughs> to this film um, and a request to come in to the next morning at 11 a.m. So I was like, well, shit, uh, I got to get some sleep. So I, I, I got up the next morning, 
read the lines quickly, went into the casting director's office. The role was written for like a 35 year old, big buff, muscly black dude. (laughs) And I walked in and there was like three 35 year old, big, you know, buff, muscly black dudes waiting to read. And I was like, well, what the fuck am I doing here? This little twinkie 21 year old <laughs> completely hungovers totally out of out of my element and uh I, I had psyched myself out so much over the course of 10 minutes of waiting and i was like fuck it i'm just gonna get up and leave so i did I, I grabbed my bag and was heading out the door when the casting director popped her head out and said jeffrey we're ready to see you so i was oh like shit well, what, do, what what do i have to lose so i went in read the lines cold left got a call within an hour from my agency telling me that I had booked the role. So it was my oh, first wow. movie. It was this, it was this, this epic dramatic piece called shock to the system about conversion therapy starring uh, Mor- Morgan Fairchild. Um, <laughs> it was epic. It was really fucking cool actually. That's amazing. <laughs> so it was, yeah. So it was my, it was my first, uh, it was my first acting gig. And the fact that I got to be a version of myself, be queer, um, that I didn't have to water myself down or um, be something that I wasn't, that I could get just kind of like step into this alternate version of myself and bring that to uh, uh, to set every day. It was such a blessing. And then, you know, from that point forward, I was living in Vancouver for the next five years or so. And it was a, a blessing and a curse. What I said before that I really was the one of very few black people and one of very few black queer people in Vancouver is that I didn't have any competition. So, mm. so many of the projects that came up from LA or New York that were casting um, their character actors or secondary characters in uh, Vancouver, if there was, you know, if there was a casting call for a black queer person, I, I, I was very lucky to be booking very consistently for, mm-hmm. for, for my first few years of acting in Vancouver. Um, that's how it started. And then I, and then I, and then I, I kind of like hit a, 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 a plateau and was really not, um, you know, challenging myself. And, um, I just, I wanted something more. I didn't know what it was, but I needed something more. So, um, I went back to modeling for a minute, moved to Cape town, South Africa, um, worked there for quite some time and, and made a good chunk of money and then moved uh, back to North America and moved to uh, New York. Mm -hmm. And, Within a month of living in New York, I was signed to another modeling agency that had an acting division, and I just started going out and 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 reading for film and television. I booked a movie within my first month of living in New York, and then um, and then along came long story short, along came Unreal, and uh, that was the the creator of Unreal was the executive producer and writer on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Marty Knoxon, mm-hmm. and she's someone who I grew grew up being completely obsessed with her work and completely obsessed and shaped by Buffy. Um, and, and I, you know, I booked the pilot of unreal and the character was the straight womanizing sleaze bag. Um, and it wasn't necessarily a character that I was super interested in playing, but I knew I wanted to work with Marty. So mm-hmm. that's the reason why I went in and read for it. And during the course of filming the pilot, I did something that I'd never done before and behind the scenes between takes, even though I was playing a straight character, I just, I, I dropped the facade and was just myself um, and didn't hide the fact that I was queer and didn't, you know, just kind of uh, really took the opportunity to um, show all parts of myself to Marty and get to know her on a really deep level. And she's a dear friend to this day. Um, but when the show got picked up, they decided to fire half the cast, rewrite the entire series. And um, I got a call one day from Marty saying, um, you know, we're, we're going to series, we're going to shoot the first season of the show, but we're scrapping the version of Jay that we had in the original pilot. And we're creating the character based off of you. 
essentially. So they had created a, a character named J. Bartholomew Carter, JBC, who has very similar qualities of <laughs> characters to, to my own. And it was just, it was, it was the greatest gift in the world, truly yeah. starting, yeah, working on that show. That's, I think it's really awesome when um, characters get shaped by the performers, you know? Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of fun to be had with stepping into a character that's nothing like you. Yeah. But in terms of, you know, the representation we were talking about, um, I I always think it's a, a, a huge boon to both the performer and the, um, the production to include real life stories and then let that person who lived those experiences be the one telling those stories. Yeah. And it sounds like it's, it's treated you well. (laughs) Absolutely. And I've, you know, of course I've had my ups and downs in this industry and had moments where I, you know, absolutely am so grateful and absolutely love, um, acting and, you know, having this, this incredible blessing of being able to walk in this industry and, you know, other times where it's been completely challenging, where you aren't accepted for the depth and truth of who you are. And you feel like you have to um, shift or shape or mold yourself into being something that you absolutely aren't and how, how painful that can be. Um, You know, but it's also, it's, I've, I've also learned a lot from that as well. I see so many of my colleagues and friends who will do absolutely anything for acceptance in this industry and to climb up the ranks and to achieve success and monetary success and fame and followers and all of that. And I see how the fame monster so can so easily gobble you up. And, um, I think because of my extreme sensitivity, um, I, I take, I, I generally am working for a few months and then we'll take a few steps back and just step back into myself and have nothing to do with the industry. You know, I yeah. will delete all social media off of my phone. Not I was just going to, I was just going to talk to you about some um, social media deletion in, in yeah. your experience. Yeah. Go um, for it. In my notes here from my lovely producer, <laughs> Joseph, I'm reading this verbatim. Yeah. Um, I, Admittedly, I I feel like I um I don't keep up with all I, I very much consider myself a part of the drag race family. Yeah, and of I do keep up with the current events in the drag race world, but I don't know every aspect of everything that happens. Nor <laughs> so do this I. Is, <laughs> this is news to me and I find yeah. it fascinating. <laughs> um in my notes it says, due to the continued racism and fan response, um, you deleted your Twitter account at the suggestion of RuPaul. And how 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 did that tell tell us a little bit about that. I mean that is intense. Social media is a new thing for performers and entertainers in this industry it's like it's this necessary evil in our industry it's also mm-hmm. something that you know wasn't a, a part like for you and I I don't know how old you are but for me at 34 you know when I first set my sights on being an entertainer and working in the entertainment industry social media wasn't an aspect of it and yeah. I didn't even have an Instagram when I went on Drag Race um, because I just wasn't interested in social media. Mm-hmm. And that's why my handle is The Jinx rather than <laughs> Jinx Monsoon because I was late Somebody to already it. snatched that up, honey. <laughs> yeah. That's so, funny. I mean, I have to imagine that's, you know, I've experienced my own online internet hate. Um, 
but I, I've rarely had uh, my race be an aspect of that. You know, I, yeah. I as a white person, it's not something I would ever claim that I deal with in in my social media experience. And I can't imagine what it's like, you know, in the 2020s or in the 2000s to still be yeah. dealing with that kind of shit and to see those people come out of the woodwork and come out of the shadows because they have the safety of internet anonymity. Yeah. Um, what was that experience like for you? And, and how did you feel after deleting Twitter? <laughs> well, I mean, it was very freeing to delete Twitter, but that said, Twitter has never been like a, you know, a, a staple in my life by any means. Mm-hmm. I've never really been that into social media. Um, just to, to touch on what you just said, people coming out of the woodworks, it's, I think that they've, that we can see them coming out in droves because of the nature of the internet and social media. But, you know, I've dealt with racism and bigotry and homophobia and, and femme phobia and all of the above my entire life. So it's not like it was anything new to me. It was just new to be receiving it to this degree, specifically yeah. from the queer community. That's the part yeah. that was most challenging and most heartbreaking paired with the fact that we were in the midst of a um, uh, a racial reckoning. Um, yeah. So, you know, at the same time as people were marching in our streets, um, you know, shouting Black Lives Matter, I was being, you know, uh, bombarded with, uh, direct messages with the most vile, hateful, disgusting comments, you know, essentially telling me my black, my black life didn't matter. So that, that part was tough. Um, but you know, social media has never made me feel good about myself. It's never been a source that I've gone to, to, you know, to, uh, for validation or affirmation ever, even when it's only been positive, wonderful, kind, loving messages that have been flooding my inbox. It's not, it's not a place that I go to, to, um, you know, to, to, to feel good about myself. I, I, I can't, I can't think of many people who do spend much time on Instagram or Twitter who log off and do feel good about themselves. Yeah. It's just, it's not, it's not the real world. And I think that, you know, it, I know it being on this side of the industry, there's, we're around, um, you know, celebrity and, and influencers and these people who have millions of followers and millions of dollars and, um, live these beautiful, shiny picture, perfect lives online. But for most, for the, for the most part, that just ain't the truth behind the scenes, honey, you know, yeah. the, the, the social media, it's all a facade. None of it, not much of it is real. It's all um, really glitzy and glamoury and gorgeous, but it's, um, you know, uh, at the end of the day, we're all just human beings. We're flawed and have feelings and but are challenges. Curated. And it's a completely. curated glimpse into completely. a person's life. And yeah. I think, you know, we, we were talking about, you know, the kind of model of what you, what's laid out for you when you're born into this world. And now social media has opened to this new path and we see mm-hmm. people go from obscurity to fame mm-hmm. purely through in, uh, uh, through through social media. I almost mm-hmm. said Instagram because it's the only one I kind of pay mm-hmm. attention to now. But, but we've seen a lot of people rise to fame purely through social media. And yeah. I think that has created this idea of like, oh, that's a path I can take. I can just put all my attention into my social media and that will be my path to something I want in life. But you do become absorbed with the the facade and you get mm-hmm. kind of lost in the, um, you know, the, the, 
the fantasy Vapid superficiality. World. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I, I really only use social media for the most part. I don't give people a real true glimpse into my everyday life on social media. I don't do stories and do lives and all of that. It just doesn't, it's just not my bag. Um, I really only use social media at times when I'm promoting work. So at that point I was promoting uh, two things. I was promoting Canada's Drag Race and a film that I had coming out called Spiral. Um, and it's, you know, Twitter, it was my first time using Twitter really that consistently to that degree, weekly posting things on Twitter. And it's just the cesspool of the internet girl. Like we think that, mm-hmm. that, that Instagram is bad. It has its moments where it's awful. You know, YouTube is really bad, but the worst part of yeah. YouTube is the comment section and Twitter is just the comment section. And it's, you know, it's just something, it's, it's something that I just really quickly realized I didn't, it wasn't necessary. I wasn't gaining anything from it. And so it was pretty easy to let go of, um, you know, Rue is somebody who's been just such a wonderful friend and, so, and source of support for me for many years now. And, um, you know, I followed his lead and Michelle's lead when they kind of had, were fed up with all of the bullshit and, and, and hate and uh, toxicity on Twitter. They too, uh, just you know, deleted their accounts, and they were better for it. And so, and yeah. so, I followed suit. Um, I, you know, that said, I mean, right now is an example of when I, I don't, I don't have any. I'm, I'm going back to start filming season two of Doogie, but right now I don't have anything specifically that I'm promoting, so I don't have social media right now. Nothing's on my phone. I don't have Instagram. I don't have Facebook. I don't yeah. have Snapchat or TikTok or anything. And I love it. You know, like I said, yeah. I because I'm so sensitive. I just I feel like every so often I need to take a step back and have nothing to do with the industry. Yeah. Hollywood, social media, and any of that stuff, and just be myself, you know? Um, so much so to the point where this is my first time, you know, talking with you. This is my first time doing any sort of press or talking about the industry in any capacity in, in months. Um, yeah. And it's, 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 it's just, I, I almost had to like, I just switch back into that mode because I just yeah. don't think, I don't think about it. I don't think about, I don't think about what I do on a daily basis. I don't think about work and acting and fame and all of the bullshit that comes with it. It's just, um, I'm focused on, on, uh, being the best version of myself essentially. And in order to do that, oftentimes I have to take a step back from other people's opinions, people who Absolutely. don't know me and who, who will never know me, you know? So, well, I, you know, having a very different experience in how I found myself in this industry for me, it was very, very much the story of like overnight, you know, like I went from, you know, being a well-known drag queen in my, my local area to being, you know, internationally known. And it was a huge trick of the brain and a trick of the ego. Mm -hmm. And early on, I thought it was important for me to read the comments because I need to know (laughs) how my, I I needed to know how my work is being interpreted. I needed to know how people were responding to my work. And it took training and it took, you know, therapy. And (laughs) it took a lot of, uh, a lot of work to realize that like um, the people who are commenting the most and the loudest are not the people I'm doing this work for. You know, the people who show up 
to your audiences, the people who actually watch your work, those are who you should be working for, not the people who just like get off on putting their shitty opinions out into the world. That's, you know? it, that's, that's exactly right. You know, and to harken back to what I was saying earlier about starting in this industry at such a young age, at 15 years old, and really learning to not take critique personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, that still reigns true for it rings true for today for myself. I, when it comes to the people whose opinions matter, um, I don't take it personally. I can take yeah. it and use it as constructive criticism and use it to better myself overall. Um, but you know, there's a difference between that and the people who were just, uh, uh, you know, just spewing toxicity all over all over the internet. Also, I look at you know, I, I look at people uh, on on Twitter who receive some hate and dis, you know, just some of the most disgusting. Uh, just just toxic shit being thrown at them. And they're some of the kindest, brightest, most mm-hmm. beautiful, optimistic, wonderful, loving human beings on the planet. So it just puts things in perspective for me when I see, yeah. um, when I see, you know, people who I know to be just extraordinary individuals uh, getting destroyed online. I know none of it's real, all of it's bullshit. Yeah. None of it has anything to do with them or me. And so it, it makes it that much easier to, to, to look away from it, to pay it no mind. Yeah. I think I think everyone will benefit from hearing the words that it's a facade, it's a fantasy. Child. I think that people who get sucked into being those hateful people online mm-hmm. see that as their way in, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. if I can say some hateful comment that gets a lot of viewership, maybe this is mm-hmm. my way into having my taste of what we are being told is this fantasy life through social media, you know? You're, compl- you're completely right, Jinx. You know, something that really put things in perspective for me to, uh, towards the end of the airing of the first season of Canada's Drag Race, I was still doing press and for a couple of queer outlets, and I won't name who specifically, but both on the record and off the record, a couple of queer male journalists asked me, uh, essentially, what is it like? What is it like being, you know, having this platform, having a celebrity, having fame? And it just, it just, it, 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 allowed me to see it in a completely different perspective and it, it, what you were saying is is absolutely true that there's this um there's this uh, when you're on the quote unquote outside of it you don't see it for what it is you don't see people on your television screens and on your social media feeds as human beings you see them as these uh these these objects these commodities these characters uh, or, or ab- ab- um, avatars absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And, th- and then you and then you you fantasize about, you know, stepping past the velvet rope and your life completely transforming and you being this like fuller, bigger, brighter, better version of yourself. And it's just not, it's just not the truth. It's not the fame that makes you a better version of yourself. It's, it's the work you put into yourself. And if anything, um, the fame, uh, more often diverts us from our path of being our best self because fame brings with it, you know, like fame, I think creates a bubble around you and you want to make sure that that bubble is people who are continuing to be real with you. (laughs) It's why most of the people in my life now are the people who were in my life before drag race Me too, because they are the people who keep me connected to who I've always been. Mm -hmm. And I think um, the people who kind of go off the rails in many, many ways um, are the people who experience fame and then surround themselves with people who feed 
that mm-hmm. monster and the people. The monster, the fame monster, yeah, honey. Exactly. How, how, do, how, do you, how do you navigate it? It's, you seem like a sweet, sensitive soul. I mean, I know you are a sweet, yeah. sensitive soul. It's <laughs> not, this, is, this industry, this beast is not made for people like us, unfortunately. I navigate it by, like I said, um, the people in my life are the people who know me for me um, mm-hmm. before, during, and after my experiences with fame and who keep me in touch with who I wanted to be before all of this mm-hmm. and remind me of how to how to be that person mm-hmm. and keep me on that path. And then, you know, therapy. Therapy is a big part of it. And I would therapy. say not reading the comments, but I'm not even always great at that. Um, no. But you 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 train yourself to even if you do find yourself looking in the comments, uh, to have some mantra or some kind of detox from the comments so that you let that go and and you don't carry it with with you into your real life and just a little water setting. off the duck's back, honey. Just a little water off the duck's back. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Ba- boundary setting. I could. Yeah. Absolutely. The importance of boundaries. Uh, you know, both yeah. online and in real life. It's hugely, yeah. hugely important for me. Jeffrey, I have my compulsory questions. You having um, heard uh, some episodes of Hijinx, you being a fan of uh, drag yourself, I'm sure um, that you've heard my compulsory questions and hopefully you've come up with some answers already. But first and foremost, who is your celebrity crush today? You, Jinxie. I was going to say you. I'm looking Aww. at you with this muscle tee <laughs> and your chain and your snapback. And uh, I, I see the crystals in the background. And I'm like, Girl, this is my only you, crush for the day. <laughs> you're so cute. I was never, you know, I was actually, I was actually thinking about this earlier because I knew you were going to ask me. And I was thinking that I've only really had two celebrity crushes in my whole life. And they were when I was a kid. It was Jonathan Taylor Thomas and, <laughs> and Ryan Phillippe. Like, but... But I, I, I don't, I've never really had this obsession or, um, you know, illusion of what fame is or what celebrity is. So I just see them as, you know, real. My, my crushes have nothing to do with where they at, where they're at in their fame. It's all to do with, I have, uh, I have a, I, I'm, I'm the girl who has a crush on every boy. I'm yeah. the, <laughs> I, I find lots and lots of things attractive. So I find yeah. myself, my, my best friend's always like, when we're scrolling through YouTube looking for something to watch, I'm like, oh, let's look at that. And he goes, you, you just want to click on that because there's a cute boy on the thumbnail. And <laughs> it's going to be something you're interested in. And it rarely is. But yeah, I have a, I have a wide range of tastes and I have no problem saying Saying that you are absolutely That's... my crush for the day. <laughs> Thanks, honey. Ditto. <laughs> and you said you're six foot four, so you got that going for you. <laughs> Perfect. Just your type for today, at least. For, <laughs> for right now. Uh, um, my next question is: um, yeah. Are you spiritual? And I don't want to presume anything with your array of crystals, but that is a huge Girl. hunk of quartz, and I Girl. don't think you just inherit. A, a chunk of quartz that big if you if you if, if you only a paperweight knew. you know <laughs> if you only knew i probably I, I have hundreds hundreds of crystals in my home I'm hol- i've been holding this piece of black obsidian the whole time i have this black obsidian obsidian right is very good for protection it sure um, is honey that sensitive soul you're talking about Absolute- are you a virgo i'm i am my moon is in virgo i'm a okay. libra 
Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I have this Os- this Osea Vegas nerve oil that I was using as well. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm very spiritual. I um, I, I started practicing uh, Nichiren Buddhism. Not that you can't be spiritual without a religious practice, but I, I started practicing Nichiren Buddhism uh, when I was 25 when I first moved to New York, and it was something a practice that just um, instantly spoke to me that I connected with on a deep soul level, uh, something that I really couldn't explain, but it just it just resonated with me and just fit. Um, it's the practice of chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. Uh, it's the Tina Turner Buddhism, Tinta Turner, as many people know it as. Uh, and then when I met my biological mother a few years ago, we were talking, and it turns out that she practiced Nichiren Buddhism all throughout her pregnancy with me. So it just wow. was one of those, Nature you know, one of those cosmic lights. Uh huh. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So yes, I mean, I'm, I, I am, I'm. I'm spiritual in many, many ways. And it's really, it's um, me taking that, those steps away from the industry of every few months is to uh, tap back into um, the truest version of myself. And I think that's, that's the spiritual side of me. Mm -hmm. And finally, um, what is your go-to karaoke song? (laughs) Um, Brass and Pocket. I would say. I don't even know that one. Yes, you do. By is it by the Four Non Blondes or by the Pretenders? I always forget. Um, I'm not going to sing it for you here, but if we can get the rights to it, you can play it in the outro. Joseph, okay. see if you can see how many coins you got in the budget for a little brass in pocket. What's your go-to karaoke song? Um, uh, for the longest time, it was Creep, um, and it still is Creep. Creep's my Radiohead. like show Radio- off. Radiohead yeah. or TLC. Um, Radiohead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, not to say that I don't know all the words to Creep by um, TLC as well, yes, because I'm honey. a kid of the 90s, but um, uh, no, yeah, Creep you can, by Radiohead. You can like a that's, motherfucker, honey. That's my show-off song. Yeah, um, I believe it. So if I have any reason for showing off, I go to Creep, and my favorite thing to do is I start it at the original octave, you know, when you were yes. here before. And then by verse two, I'm belting it. And uh, uh, I love it. <laughs> that, that's... You know, the, the, the reference <laughs> you may have for, Bre- for Brass and Pocket, actually, it's mm-hmm. the song that Scarlett Johansson sings in Lost in Translation, where she's wearing the pink wig. Do you remember that scene? I haven't seen Lost in Translation. <gasps> I feel like that's sing. one of those movies that everyone tells me I have to see. So then yes. I've never seen it because I'm obstinate. But fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Well, you have been absolutely lovely to talk to. Yeah, and you, you are, too, honey. You're such a kind, sweet person. And mm, it breaks my heart that you ever had to deal with online hate, but it, it it fills me with hope and joy to know that you you found your way out of it and you didn't let it crush you. And then here you are today, such a sweet, um, kind, generous, gracious person. So take Thanks, that, trolls. Yeah. Take that, trolls of the internet. You're not going to break... JBC stride. You ain't gonna slow him down. (laughs) You're so funny, honey. Thank you. Like attracts like. You know, you can only see that in me because it exists in you as well. And I really do believe in karma. So, you know, um, any uh, challenges that you faced in this industry, um, you know, on camera, behind the scenes as well, it's um, it it all balances out. When you're a good person who has good intentions, um, you know, you may see a lot of people in this industry who achieve certain levels of success or but um, more often than not, if your intentions aren't good with what you're putting out into the world, mm-hmm. um, that 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 success and that fame is very empty and short-lived. So um, I'm so happy to see your ongoing um, 
uh, uh, sustaining of where of you know who you are and who you choose to be in this world because it's really beautiful um, the the energy you put out. Well, thank you. Yeah. Therapy and good friends. That's, Honey. <laughs> that's Therapy and on. CBD child. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You have to have a little, you have to have at least a little THC a little. to activate the CBD, <laughs> yeah. but that's for another podcast. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Thanks. It's been Thanks, a delight. Jinx. And thank Ditto. you all so much for listening to Hijinks here on the Forever Dog and Moguls of Media Network. My name is Jinx Monsoon, and we have new episodes every Wednesday. So make sure to search for Hijinks on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe. You can follow me at the Jinx on Instagram or at Jinx Monsoon everywhere else. You can follow Jeffrey Boyer Chapman if he happens to be on social media at the time. But otherwise, give him his space. And I'll see you next Wednesday for some more Hijinks. To listen to Hijinks ad-free and one day early, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcasts.com slash plus. Hijinks is produced by Forever Dog and Moguls of Media, a.k.a. Mom. Hosted by me, Jinx Monsoon. Produced by Joseph Shepard. Editing and sound design by Will Pitts. And executive produced by Willem Belli, Alaska Thunderfuck, Brett Boehm, Big Dipper, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey.